Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I am uh, thrilled. I want to get started. I'm Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, where we are committed to closing gender gaps in the area of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And we have this very lofty um, ambitions, um, set of ambitions. And the research seminar um, fits into that by connecting um, uh, thought leaders uh, with um, uh, researchers, scholars, uh, students, um, staff uh, in uh, our Kennedy School, WAP and Kennedy School community to um, spark ideas. And on the conversation of sparking ideas and innovation, this is our kind of perfect speaker here today. So Stephen um, Frost is, um, he's going to be talking about his um, new book on inclusive talent management, how businesses can thrive in the age of diversity. But he was a WAP fellow a couple of years, is one of our claims to fame, that Steve Frost was a WAP fellow a few years ago. Um, during which time he wrote his first book called The Inclusion Imperative. He is also a very proudly, um, we can make claim to him, of uh, being a Kennedy School grad. So he is a, um, and he hires uh, Kennedy School students, um, Raphael Dinas, that he has to work with in the next year. So um, very much in the heart of our community and someone of whom we are very admiring and proud. He is a globally recognized diversity, inclusion, and leadership expert, um, working with clients, you can really say, across sectors. Um, and uh, really, I think, rose to prominence when he led inclusion programs for the London Olympic and Paralympic Games as the head of diversity. So I could keep going on and on, but I want you guys to have time to interact with Steve. So please join me in um, welcoming Steve. Actually, Steve, I'm so sorry. I'm not supposed to mention also that, that our program is now podcast. Oh, right. So, so you think you're in a small seminar room, but it's wow. actually, um, these podcasts have been downloaded tens of thousands of times, awesome. and so we actually have a much larger community joining in with us today. Very good. I'll try and slow down, check the acts, and, and use no excuses <laughs> whatsoever during the course of this presentation. Hannah, thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's genuinely a joy to be back. And thank you all for coming along as well. I trust it wasn't just for the wonderful free lunch, but hopefully you'll be participating as the blood sugar levels rise. We'll have an interesting conversation over the next hour or so. Um, it's true, I was a WAP fellow. Uh, it was a joy to be here. Just beyond that wall, I wrote my first book. Uh, the Boston winter is very conducive to writing. Um, but it was, a, it, was, it was wonderful to be amongst this group. And I've learned so much. And it's just great to be back. So. Um, what I'd like to do is talk for maybe 30, 40 minutes max, and I'll read your faces as to know whether that's being too long or too short, and then we've got time for Q&A, because in this space right now there is a lot going on, and I'd love to get your thoughts on the table and questions and so forth. Um, what I would say is that um, whilst being at Harvard, it is truly a joy to kind of learn from the best research, the latest thinking and so forth in this wonderful institution. But even though I think Harvard's better than most at integrating it with the real world out there, there still sometimes feels this gulf between being in here and really thinking deeply and being out in the real world when you've got deadlines and bosses and office politics and so forth. And I know that you do this better than a lot of organizations, but still this potential gulf between academia and the real world is something I want to explore in this. Because a constant tension for me is knowing what we should do academically versus what actually practically is going to work with a very difficult boss by four o'clock on Friday. So I'd like that tension to kind of surface as well as I talk through some of this stuff. And as Hannah said, I'm gonna really focus on the second book that we're called Inclusive Talent Management. 
which is really about this gulf and this gap between what we think is the right thing to do, or objectively the right thing to do, versus what actually really happens in practice. And the reason I wanted to write this book is because I've, I've now had the privilege of working with literally tens, if not hundreds, of organisations all around the world in many, in many different cultures, where they genuinely believe they have a meritocracy. And they genuinely believe they promote the best people, they recruit the best people, they, you know, they operate the best people, and so forth, allocate work according to merit, and so forth. When actually, when you look at it, and you don't have to analyse it that far, that's patently not the case. And so actually kind of almost holding the mirror up to these organisations and to say, OK, you really want meritocracy, right? Well, actually, here is the market failure, and here's what you could do about it. And we can look at that academically, which I'll try to do. But as Iris said to me in my first book, don't write an academic book. <laughs> Be practical about this. Because, because what really happens in practice, practically, is that people in charge of those organisations, overwhelmingly straight white men, get very defensive when you suggest they are not a meritocracy. And so how do you do it in a clever way to actually use the research and, and try and work towards what's you know, best, but actually do it in a very savvy, critical way without compromising your ideals en route? So um, what I'd like to do is just start off with two short videos. And these are ones that I've played often with the C-suite and organisations. If you've seen them before, hopefully they'll be a pleasant reminder. If you haven't, I hope you'll find them interesting. But the first one is a one-minute video about cycle safety in London. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? completely applicable to the conversation we're having today, right? That when I work with KPMG or Deloitte or Goldman or whoever it is, and they generally say, well, there just aren't any women, or there aren't the best people there, or, well, it's very easy to look, you miss something you're not looking for, right? And, and I think we get into those whole debates around presenting, self-promotion, extra introvert, and so forth. So now I'd like to show you a, a brief clip, which is a little bit uh, edgy, forgive me, but it's actually a clip taken from uh, a news programme in the UK last year. There's a very famous comedian in the UK called Lenny Henry, who is a black British guy, um, incorrectly known as African American, known as British, um, <laughs> a black British guy, and um, he won a knighthood, which is something that the British establishment likes to bestow on people uh, as a kind of a you know, award of, of, of doing something worthy for the, for the, for the empire that once was. Um, 
So he got a, an award for his services to uh, diversity and, and to society. And I just want you to look at how the uh, TV news covered this. My partner and my and my daughter are here, and it's just an extraordinary thing. I think my 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 sister was looking at me and telling me to be serious. Oh no! Do you know what? Good luck to old Lenny. He's he done he's a lot. He's been it. there, hasn't he? Yeah. Kids TV, Tis yeah. was, yeah. Don French's husband. Yeah. Well, I think that somebody just just asked me about is diversity one of the reasons you're here, and I don't know. I mean, it's a very it's a wonderful thing to champion because it means everybody. So if it means inclusivity for everybody, then I yes, I do champion diversity. Everybody should get a fair shake. Everybody deserves an opportunity. That's not Lenny Henry. Everybody deserves a leg up. That's um Walcott Walcott. Walcott, 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 Bloody Ainsley! Yeah, well, that was me. I was Ainsley. Ainsley. That was me. I would have got mad if Rusty Lee came up instead of me. What a complete gap! I mean, for crying out loud, this is the moment when Sir Lenny Henry becomes knighted, and they put in a bloody picture of Ainsley Harriet. What if I just show a picture of Morgan Freeman from Short <laughs> <laughs> This is him in his serious role. <laughs> My daughter Billy is here, my partner Lisa are here, and they're very proud. You can see their smiles from the moon. Congratulations, Sir Lenry Henry talking to Nina Nana about... She said Lenry! She said Lenry! Oh, <laughs> what is wrong with this newspaper? Yeah, Percy Ensign bottles this up a bit, don't you? Yeah, they have. It was definitely Ainsley Harriet, and not Lenry Henry. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we're working there with the BBC and the Channel 4 and you know they're generally wonderfully smart, lovely, progressive people who want to do the right thing. But this happens every day, right? They've got the wrong black guy. In the same way they're kind of like, oh you know, just get a woman on the board, whatever it might be. It's this othering leads to kind of hilarious but often tragic consequences. So we've played this a lot to kind of make people aware that it's very easy to miss something you're not looking for. And of course, you might say, well, why now? This is surely something that's existed since time immemorial, right? Why, why are we writing this book right now? And the answer is on the screen. Now, um, I, I have to say that it, it's fortuitous that, that, I think fortuitous is the wrong word, <laughs> fortuitous that Brexit and uh, the US presidential election have happened as they have, because the book was written before these things happened. But since the book has been published and these things have happened, it's had a rather big take up. Um, when you look at these phenomena that have happened, and, and what we see around the world at the moment in terms of rising nationalism, and I don't know if any of you have studied uh, rising nationalism in correlation with male leaders, but it'd be interesting to, to look at that study. Um, I think it's really, really pertinent. And I was saying to Victoria before this seminar that what's been really interesting, having worked in diversity and inclusion for 16 years, is that now I absolutely no longer feel like a lobbyist. I generally feel like a consultant and organizations are calling us rather than the other way around. Because there is something going on where they're saying, you know, half our workforce are EU nationals. Or, you know, we're actually having social strife inside Caterpillar in, in Illinois. Or actually having a challenge with Pfizer in New York. And Pfizer hosted a round table recently, bringing together pharma companies to discuss the implications of social divisions outside in terms of employee relations in their companies. So what I'd like to do is kind of get down to, I think, uh, a truism. Does anybody know who this is? 
Bob Diamond, former chief executive of Barclays Bank. And Bob Diamond's an interesting character because he was hauled before the UK Parliamentary Select Committee for um, questions around Barclays practices in relation to the 2008 financial crisis. And he was brilliantly honest in Parliament. And when he was asked about the culture of risk-taking amongst largely male teams, he said this, that culture is what you do when nobody's watching you. And I think this is brilliantly honest, in my opinion, that for all we legislate, for all we talk about training and so forth, culture is really what happens behind closed doors. It's really how decisions get made in boardrooms and executive committees beyond the annual report and so forth. So how do you get down to tackling that? So, so one thing, of course, is being aware of our in-groups. Does everybody know about in-groups and out-groups? So what I'd like to do with you now is just do a quick refresher and something that perhaps you've already done many times, but if you haven't, it'd be interesting for you to do. And that's just to grab a pen and paper or to make a mental note if you've got a good capacity for memory. I'm going to ask you four questions. And I'd like you to be completely honest because only you will know the answer to this unless you choose to share it with the room. The first question I'd like to ask you is, who are your five closest friends in the world? Just jot those names down and picture those faces in your head in terms of who those five people are, your five closest friends in the world. And don't overthink this, just, just run with it. And the second thing I'd like to do is to ask you to think about your five closest colleagues. So maybe at Harvard right now, maybe in your class, maybe in your previous organization, but your five closest colleagues. Who are the people that you would turn to if you have a bad day, confide in, you know, share what you really think? And the third question, which is very difficult for the Brits or perhaps the New Englanders amongst us, uh, talk about love. Um, <laughs> who is your other half, if you have one, if you want one? or if it's going rather badly, who's the other half you'd like to have? Um, who's that person? When I do this with the C-suite, often they have to write it down. Um, and then finally, think about where you live. Like, where's your nest? Where's your apartment or your, your mansion? Where is that home? So hopefully now in front of you, you have your five closest friends in the world, your five closest colleagues, your partner or partners or future partner, and where you live. And if you were to draw a line around those people, and we call, of course, that your in-group, very quick and down and dirty, but the point is made, how diverse is that group? And of course, you can imagine doing this with people that hold those decision-making levers in organizations. And you think about partners at KPMG, or the, the senior law partners at you know, Goldman Sachs, or you know, Clifford Chance, or you think about the senior people in various government agencies and think about their in-groups. And a very simple truism is that they don't necessarily have the diverse inputs to influence their unconscious frame of decision-making, their frame of reference, when they make the decisions at the moment. So in other words, their, their resource base around them is fairly homogenous. Now, I know that I'm making huge assumptions, because many of you may say, actually, my, my, my group is like United Nations plus. And some of you may do, and congratulations. But I think most of us suffer from homophobia notion that we are naturally, unconsciously, implicitly drawn towards people like us. And it's nothing to feel bad about. It's a natural and normal occurrence. But it's something to be very aware of. 
because actually when we're not aware of it, that becomes unconsciously our frame of reference and defines what we think intelligence looks like, defines what a leader looks like and who we might trust and so forth. And as we see in the US election, as we see in Brexit, as we see lots of things happening right now, those in-groups have consequences because if that's who we trust and who we think is smart and correct, that's who we get our information from, then the segregation process is almost inevitable. So why do I say this? I say this because this is something that many corporate leaders aren't aware of, certainly aren't conscious of on a daily basis, yet it has serious ramifications for talent management. And if I may, I want to make another assumption that many of you in here are you know, pro-gender equality, perhaps slightly skeptical of the current administration and so forth. But actually, I don't want to talk about them in this example. I want to talk about the New York Times and the ACLU. Because after uh, Trump was elected, I saw in the New York Times a full-page ad from the ACLU saying, see you in court. Right? Now, my instant kind of system one reaction was like, yay, ACLU. <laughs> my system two reaction was, why are you advertising in the New York Times? Because this is absolutely reinforcing the in-group that we need to be challenging if we're actually going to create greater inclusion. Right? So I politely kind of said to a couple of colleagues there, you're part of the problem, right? Um, so I guess, coming to the book, what I wanted to kind of do is really lay out two parts to it. And one, I guess, is slightly more academic, although never an academic book. But the, the slightly more academic bit is the kind of first part, the challenge. This notion of actually, in an age of diversity, we are still addicted to likeness and to sameness. Why? And we kind of looked at some historical reasons why. We looked at the current state of affairs in corporate America and corporate UK and Europe as to why that was the case and tried to lay out a succinct 100 pages on why the current situation is not fit for purpose. And to give people the mother of all business cases and so forth, those people who naturally wouldn't want to be bothered by this subject. And the second part of the book was really, so what do we do about it? Sorry, bye. Thank you very much. Right. Was what do we do about it? And again, a practical how-to in terms of when you are busy and you have no resources and no time and your boss is giving you a hard time, what are the practical things you can do to make a difference? And this translation of you know, academic research into actually practical application that I'm, I'm very passionate about. So the idea was that, look, let's not beat ourselves up. We have relatively homogenous in-groups and we still prefer people like us to difference. Whatever side of the divide, politically or so forth, you're on. But what can we do about it practically? in terms of organisations. And you'll know from lots of work that's going on in this time institution, um, there's lots of work on nudges, uh, corporate behavioural economics, which I've learned loads from. And I think that's a critical part of the answer here, like unconscious nudging, changing the system and so forth. But another part of it, I think, has to be conscious leadership. And it's my contention that it's both the unconscious and the conscious that actually leads to some different behaviours in corporates. So what we did was we interviewed 66 organisations and we asked them a series of questions. We said, um, do you believe you're a meritocracy at the moment? Um, and then we kind of, you know, laid down, tell us more about that. And then we asked them how they manage their people. What, what is their current talent management processes? And we talked about how they recruited people, uh, often through networks, uh, how they promoted people, often by, you know, shout loudest, uh, often by how they retained people, often by who asked for more money. Uh, and then often we kind of analyze these people processes and, and, and try to kind of play it back and hold the mirror. And whilst there are some undoubtedly great practices going on, 
there are also a lot of dodgy practices going on, many of them actually unconscious, that people weren't even aware of. And it was only really by holding up the mirror to these organizations could we then say, we're going to call the current state homogenous talent management. We're going to actually say that what's going on at the moment, in a nutshell, is basically massively bias-infused recruitment, massively bias-infused promotions, and massively bias-infused retention and, and, and growth and so on. And what we want to do is to suggest you move towards inclusive talent management. And building on the work that I did at Harvard a few years ago and, and the research that we just did for this book, we kind of cemented these three paradigms, if you like, of, of corporate diversity and inclusion strategy. And one was what I called Diversity 101, which is really a compliance-based approach that organizations will think about gender equality and think about race equality and diversity because they have to because of the EEOC, because of other pressures and, and, and so forth. And I don't want to knock compliance, because that's a very important role to play. You know, without compliance, we would not have gays in the military. We would not have gender pay reporting in the UK and so forth. But it's about attaining a minimum, not about attaining a maximum. The second paradigm we, we kind of really articulated was what I call diversity 2.0, or marketing that approach. So for example, every time I go to Davos, I'm always dazzled by EY, professional services firm, that takes over Davos in terms of creating a feminist revolution, right? You know, talking about the gender pay gap, talking about really good stuff they're doing. But it's still marketing. And that marketing is only as good as it's backed up by actual fact and, and progress on the ground. And lots of companies now are getting very good at marketing. And that's, again, essential, important stuff to do. But we shouldn't be seduced by it that actually it's one part of the answer, but it's not actually necessarily truly happening on the ground. So for example, when I spoke to uh, a senior partner at EY, and they calculated with the World Economic Forum that it would take us 80 years to get to gender pay equality, I said, well, that's an assumption that we actually move forwards. <laughs> it's 80 years if we move forwards. But if you believe in the power of in-groups and homophily, that is not a given. And indeed, it's quite a dangerous assumption. The third area, of course, is inclusion 3.0, which I'm going to say is about this twinning of the unconscious nudges with the actual conscious leadership competencies. And that, for me, is actually organizations wanting to do it generally for business reasons. And we were discussing before that if one good thing comes out of what's going on in the moment, um, it's that actually corporate consciousness has never been higher on these issues. And if there's something that you care about, there's never been a better time to ask corporations what their view on it is because being neutral on these issues is no longer a neutral position. You actually have to think about it. Um, I was speaking to a bank last week in London, and half their workforce are EU nationals. Um, you know, they have serious gender pay gap that we've got to publish in a couple of weeks' time. Um, these are now boardroom level priority issues for them to address, and I think that's a good thing. So in the book, this, this first part, I guess a more research-based state of the nation, and the second part, a more how-to, kind of laid out like this. Um, we talked about homogenous talent management, the idea that we unconsciously recruit, promote, and hire similar people. Um, history, how this evolved. We talked a lot about British colonialism, the origins of othering, uh, you know, Said's book on Orientalism, and, and lots of the origins of how this came to be. And then we talked about the future, um, the idea that one of the reasons this is now salient, regardless of the short-term political changes going on in our countries, is because actually demographically, corporations are not keeping up with the world around them. And we see now a massive shift in birth rates from Europe and the West to, to uh, the East and the South. 
We see a massive you know, aging populations which are not supported by the workforces and so forth and so forth. And yet still organizations, um, sorry, countries still resist immigration and so forth, and something's got to give, right? And then of course we propose inclusive talent management. So I just want to give you some examples in the remaining few minutes from recruitment, promotion, retention, and some things we're seeing companies do. As I said, I, I believe it's this twinfold approach. There's the systems piece, the unconscious nudges, if you like, which many of you are familiar with. Are you all familiar with nudges? And then the second part is this leadership stuff. So let me just pick out a couple of examples. And if it's OK, I'll, I'll go fairly quick so that we have more time for discussion. But I can go into depth on any of these if they're of a particular interest to you. So let me pick up on one, for example, here about um, let's say the, the guaranteed interview scheme at Lloyds Bank. At the Olympics and Paralympics a few years ago, we trialled this idea that we would try and intervene in the market for hiring people with disabilities. People with disabilities were furthest away from the labour market, uh, very cynical about the processes, less networked, less self-promoting, and so forth and so forth. And so we thought, how can we intervene to make a step change in the recruitment? And we said that if we find people, or they find us, that are qualified for the job by a seven-point job description, they are guaranteed interview. So we just cut through a lot of the kind of challenges we had to be guaranteed interview. And what that meant was that recruiters at the Olympics, or at Lloyds Bank, were suddenly, often for the first time, meeting hundreds and hundreds of people with disabilities for jobs, for interviews. And this had a couple of effects. One, by increasing the supply side uh, of, of talent, you know, the chances of people being hired just increased. But also had effect on the demand side, because recruiters would say, you know, they'd never interviewed a blind person, or they'd never interviewed a deaf person. They didn't know how to. And when you do it again and again and again over a period of months, it starts to become you know, more comfortable, more habitual, and so forth. And what we did actually with the Olympics was we shifted the interview room from the tall skyscraper in the London's financial district to a community centre. Uh, which actually, again, changed the dynamic of the supply side and the demand side. And it had a big effect, as well as saving some money. But anyway, there's tons of stuff on the supply side of talent that you can do to make a step change difference. But I guess I'm, I'm most interested on the demand side. So I'm most interested with how people make decisions around hiring other people. And so there's, again, lots of examples I could give you here. I'm going to go in, into a little bit of depth on the Olympics and KPMG as two examples. So I'll, I'll, I'll do that in a minute. But let me just kind of set out for a minute uh, this group interviews idea. Many of you have heard of this, Iris's work and lots of other work you've seen. But what was great for me and Tom, his colleague of mine at the Olympics at the time, was we just did this stuff without knowing the research, without actually knowing the wonderful kind of studies that were going on. And we did it to save time and to save money. That we had to recruit 200,000 people to put on the Olympic Games. And we couldn't take people out for business for too long because they had to do their day job. So one way of actually <coughs> lessening the demands on them, saving time, saving money, was to come interview in batches. And so for many middle-level program jobs, program manager, accountant, venue manager, and so forth, we just hired groups of ten, well, interviewed groups of ten people at a time. And the interviewers would obviously just, you know, the, the, the science behind it, would actually see more skill sets as salient rather than identity as salient would think about the team rather than the individual. The individual bias was decreased and so forth, and more diverse teams were hired at every time. And this is just something which we did through commercial pressures, 
but of course a very happy kind of coincidence that at Harvard I found some research to back it up, which is always helpful. Um, anyway, um, just to go into a bit more depth on, on this, um, at the Olympics, um, I'll give you a, a, an example um, which is kind of outside what you might think of as a talent management. And one was, what we did was funded house prayer facilities. Um, the London Olympics in 2012 were held during Ramadan. And I don't think any of the venue managers were Muslim. I don't think any of the venue managers had kind of thought about Ramadan as a consideration in their programming of the games and so forth. But we asked our employees, what might help? And one of the ideas that we came up with was funded house prayer facilities. Now, this just meant that actually uh, a, a lot of our workforce who were uh, Islamic faith could still do their jobs and you know, have on-site facilities and so forth. But it also meant that people on the autistic spectrum had a quiet place to go. It also meant actually that people with kids had a quiet place to go. It actually became an inclusive resource that helped people do their jobs better under a very time-bound, pressure-bound situation at the Olympic Games. And it became something actually that was actually used by a majority of people. It was actually brought in for minority, but used by the majority of people. And another example would be sports presentation. Um, does anybody here know anything about gymnastics? I, I knew nothing, right? I, I, and I have to confess, actually, that I got a job at the Olympics and I, I don't know very much about sports at all. Um, <laughs> but I, I love the ceremonies and the razzle dazzle stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, gymnastics is something I knew very little about. And I'd go to watch gymnastics at a test event, and I'd enjoy it and think it was very impressive, but really had no idea what was going on, or really how scores were awarded or anything, rather like some hiring decisions. And <laughs> so actually, what we did was, again, talking to a lot of our staff, particularly those who were uh, visually impaired, we launched something called audio description, which you might have heard, where you can just you know, describe what's going on. But again, this wasn't just something that we did for folks that were visually impaired. It became really useful for somebody like me, who actually could see it perfectly, but really had no idea what was going on. And I'd be quite happy to pay five, ten quid to, to go and get that, right? And again, something that was brought in for somebody else, then could be used by the majority, and was actually also a revenue stream. And there's tons of these examples in the Olympics that we did that went down quite well. But let me just give you an example from KPMG, which is specifically on gender. <clears throat> uh, many of you will know professional services firms. Anybody worked in them? Um, well, basically, again, another kind of slightly crass generalization, but they tend to be dominated by a straight white men, right? And, and they're a partnership model. So it's very much a case of the partners own, run the business, they are the shareholders and so forth. They, they are the supreme commanders of that, of that organization. And KPMG was no different, um, but there was a gentleman there called Ian Moffat, who's a straight white man who ran the national markets business in the UK, so a significant chunk of the firm. And his team was all men. It was all white, it was all male. And he recognized that his client base was changing rapidly. And he'd actually recently been told off by a female CFO of a client who said to him, 10 years ago, you were more diverse than us. Now we're more diverse than you. Do something about it, because it's noticeable and it's getting embarrassing. So to his point, he actually, to his credit, said, OK, what are we going to do about this? And we kind of talked a lot. And we decided that we would intervene in his talent management uh, approach. And what generally happened was something like this. All the partners would come into a room like this, sit around the table, and they would discuss who they wanted to promote to the partnership, which is the holy grail of the organization. 
and they would all put their candidates on the table, have discussion and agree which 10 or 20 they were going to promote. And of course, these folks are largely accountants. They are very bright, they have a quantitative bias, and they think that they're objective. But of course, like all human beings, they're deeply flawed and completely full of bias. And so what tended to happen was that the people on the table tended to be those who, yeah, may well be very bright and, and, and worthy and so forth and add value and be, be good chaps, but actually tended to be people they had an emotional connection to. Often they were mentoring, often there was a bond there. In some cases, they promised this guy a promotion. It was his turn. Uh, they knew their kids were in school. They knew about the mortgage. They knew, there were these really big emotional ties at play of course are counterintuitive to the notion of a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, how can we intervene in this in a way that doesn't make people overly defensive, but does make it more meritocratic? And what we did was we simply whiteboarded uh, the pipeline. So we had partnership ready, one year out, two year out, and people had to put up their names of their candidates. Just one nudge to start with. And then we said, well, let's put the, the boys in red and the women in green. Green is a helpful color. To but let's just whatever colour, put, 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 put the genders in different colours. And it became a little bit uncomfortable. Because then we saw that actually all the partnership ready people tended to be largely the guys, and the one to two year out people tended to be largely the women. Then uncomfortable. Then we decided to nudge a bit more, and we, we, we tied it to sales, or to some kind of quantitative measures of performance over the last year. And it got even a bit more uncomfortable. Because then you saw actually there were a few people here who were less than some people here who are one or two years out. How do we justify that? And this process became a nudge, if you like, or a system of taking people through a very rational, rigorous, calm, systematic approach to talent management. To say, actually, how can we check our biases on our in-groups? How can we check those emotional ties? How can we check those subconscious, unconscious biases that, that are completely clouding our decision-making? And how can we get more rigorous and objective but to kind of soften the blow, if you like, another nudge we did was we created a little film for them. And we talked about actually, you know, their self and their role. Uh, we talked about in-groups and out-groups. And we talked about actually how they could um, make a difference. And we created this film, which is ridiculously simple. And there's only one minute. But we, we created this film, KPMG, and then played it at the beginning of every talent management session. Just as a reminder what the population town actually looked like. So I'll just play this one minute film. I am KPMG. 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 We are all KPMG. And don't we just love it? saw a few alpha guys in that film, right? By, by, by purpose, right? So we, we tried to include everybody across it so that people felt part of it. It's just a little reminder, alongside the whiteboarding, of actually who was available for them to promote. And it had an effect. 
and you can actually see year on year at its intervention the proportion of female candidates being successful increasing in the partnership. And in the audit practice, for example, it started off with only 7% female partners compared with 28% female directors. That's now gone from 7 to 8 to 9 to 10, double figures, right? and it's going, going, going. Slowly, but it's definitely getting towards proportionality. Um, so I said I wrote these couple of books to kind of go through it. And I'll just kind of end on, on a couple of thoughts for May, and then and let's have a discussion. Um, the idea of the conscious piece, the leadership, and then the unconscious piece, the nudges, I think is, is a kind of a twin approach that's, that's necessary to kind of get some of these, these things done. But the challenge, again, of the practical is that everybody's stressed. Everybody has got no time, no attention, they're stressed. You literally grab them in the lift for three or four seconds, grab them in the corridor. So what kind of interventions generally work in this place where everybody's on system one thinking? Wadding was one thing that actually worked. Asking people to remember an acronym, what about diversity inclusion, was the most simplest of kind of reminders and nudges to think that actually when you are making those decisions and I'm not in the room, just think about this. It took an extra two or three seconds, right? It's something that people play back to all the time. Um, purposely provocative slide, um, which perhaps we can use for Q&A, but I wanted to kind of go through some, um, some stuff that we're doing right now with various organizations on trying to reframe the conscious bit uh, of this stuff. Um, I'll, I'll save the Q&A actually, because I think it'd be better to go through it then. But let me just end on, on, a, on a process point. <clears throat> At the moment, we're working with pharma companies, we're working with banks, we're working with government agencies, we're working with organizations like the Scouts. And in these organizations, they are now more concerned, in my view, and more conscious of this stuff than ever before. But still, that homophily, those in-groups, are massively dominant and, and you know, incredibly sticky. So keeping it simple is incredibly important. And what we're trying to do is just these three points with them. Say, first of all, generally understand, let's reframe diversity, not about othering, but about <coughs> us in that group. Let's think about leadership, not in terms of, again, doing something for somebody, but you yourself, make it personal, your own biases and so forth. And thirdly, deliver as and do as I do, not as I say. And again, the, the actions, for example, of Ian and his team, his all-male team, KPMG, in doing that process and whiteboarding, demonstrate genuine results, above and beyond any marketing or compliance <coughs> that actually has had a, a, an ongoing sustainable effect. So I'll leave it there. Um, but I'd be absolutely delighted to take your questions and answers in a more controversial letter. So um, I should, I'm really glad you asked it, because I should probably reinforce the fact that when I talk about those three paradigms, I'm not seeing them as mutually exclusive. I'm seeing them as kind of building or kind of important in the round. Like I think that unconscious and conscious approach is important too. So the compliance stuff is absolutely critical, right? In the sense that um, for some organizations, that is the only driver, right? Um, but of course, combined with other things, it's even more effective. So 
let's take a couple of examples. Mm. Victoria can speak to matches better than I can. Um, but if I take, for example, the UK, my own country, I think there the threat of legislation has been very effective. So actually, whilst the UK likes to take a voluntary approach, which is controversial, under the threat of EU quotas or EU laws, we've actually seen things happen. So for example, take women on boards. In 2011, uh, women on UK boards, FTSE 100, were 11.6%. Now they're 26%. It's been a phenomenal increase in a very short space of time under the threat of quotas and legislation intervention. But it's been done on a voluntary basis, albeit you know, the one remaining mining company, FTSE 100, had that recall from Theresa May, and suddenly a woman appeared on the board. But generally speaking, it's been, it's been that threat that's worked. Of course, in Norway, legislation, so forth and so forth. I think what I differentiate is, is legislation about outcomes versus legislation of a process. I'm really interested in legislation of process. So for example, mandating gender pay gaps, mandating transparency, mandating things which I think are completely you know, defensible. So the legislation in the UK over the gender pay gap, I think is really important. Because that's not saying you, know, you must define this outcome. It's just saying, let's see how you do it. And then I think people like me can then take that data, benchmark, do all kinds of things with it, and again, hopefully create more momentum for change. So, um, maybe a few thoughts on it. I don't know what you think or what you want to comment on. You know, one of the things which we did in Massachusetts that I think was um, quite forward thinking is rather than using just the threat of legislation and compliance, but to give businesses new tools. And the idea was, whereas before, any time a business looked at their wage gap, that information was discoverable. So trying to solve the problem could, one could make the case, put you at legal risk. And of course, they could have done it through their general counsel's office. So it would have been protected. Uh, but we proactively, um, those of us who worked on what would make a good bill, considered that by creating what's called an affirmative defense, anyone who did a wage audit, and if they then found that they had gaps, took meaningful steps to close those gaps, was protected for three years. Mm. So that rather than it being a, what are you doing wrong, saying, we have now created a playing field where you're protected, go solve the problem. And again, just as Steve talked about it being really cross-sector, we had business leaders who were fundamentally and significantly engaged in what it would look like and created a climate where all businesses would want to be participating. Um, and we listened and had, you know, literally the support of many of the largest employers in the state and the significant um, organizations that, um, you know, whether it's Associated Industries of Massachusetts or Boston Chamber, but again, trying to figure out how we all work in concert through talent management um, and economic argument frame. So just to build on that, uh, for example, in the UK, there was an organization called the 30% Club. And that was, again, a voluntary organization to get towards minimum 30% uh, women on boards and now in, exec in the executive pipeline. And, and Victoria's point, it's almost like the kind of the corporate uh, version or analogy of appreciative inquiry and coaching, right? You want to actually highlight success and create a competitive dynamic to better than your competitors. And so now it's inconceivable in the UK that a, a, a FTSE 100 chairman or chair generally would not want to be in this club or would not want to be showing how they're getting better and so forth. Um, so I think that, that's been a positive, um, positive development. But it's still very much, I think, in the marketing. So we've got to really then go into the pipeline and the actual behind the scenes stuff as well. Hi. Yeah, 
Actually, uh, a born optimist in this space, and I, I believe actually what's going on right now, you may be referring to, I think can ironically be helpful uh, in raising consciousness that unless we do something, the default position is aggression and saves. So, we were discussing earlier that whilst undoubtedly there are corporations right now that feel somewhat um, excused perhaps from focusing on this work because governments are otherwise preoccupied, um, I think there's a significant portion of organizations, I'd like to believe the majority, but who knows, certainly our client base, that are more than ever focused on it, for, for genuine commercial reasons. So, for example, in the farm industry, where it's never been more competitive, you know, the, the regulators have never been more vociferous, um, the margins on you know, drugs and paper are worse than ever before, it's all about creativity and new drug development, right, and the pipeline that they've got. And the, basically, the, the, the market cap in billions of different pharma companies is intrinsically related now to their, their pipelines. And that's intrinsically related to who are their research teams. And just as with Google and tech, and with Vartis or AstraZeneca or Pfizer and pharma, if they're having all male research teams, they now get that they are missing out on that creative innovation development opportunities. And so they're proactively trying to diversify those research teams. The challenge is, of course, and talent availability neglect for this area for so long they've got, but they're generally trying to do it. So if I look at Paul Hudson of Artis, or look at Pascal Spiro at AstraZeneca, these are straight white alpha men who are absolutely focused on getting more women into pharma and cognitive diversity generally into pharma, what exactly to diversify these research teams in, in, in their pipelines. If I look, for example, I don't know, at, at Scouts, Scouts is an organization which is really interesting. I, I thought it was all about guys, right? Scouts now in the UK, the chairman is a gay woman, the CEO is a millennial. They are absolutely all about growing their movement through diversity inclusion. It's a key pillar for them that they're doing. And I think actually one of the ways we're kind of getting into farmers, scouting nonprofits, is to actually their, their business case, what actually is generally going to be helpful for them. And I think it's controversial to say this, but what's going on in the world is actually a stimulus for these organizations to, to double up their efforts in this regard. In terms of drivers, sorry, in terms of drivers, I mean, for me, it's twofold, right? One is unashamedly personal, right? So one is incredibly non-professional, non-academic. It's just that, you know, I'm gay, my sister's disabled, I come from a working class background, I feel sense of social justice and so forth. So undeniably personal. But that is generally not the same thing in my work today. The same thing generally is, a more intellectual curiosity over meritocracy, over decision making, is actually generally getting better decisions. And when you do challenge people, and you do challenge stereotypically straight white men within organizations, as to do you want a meritocracy? Do you want generally to have innovation and creativity? Are you generally trying to get an edge over your competitors? Then you do have a little little way in. And okay, empathy does decline as you go up the the, the poll and, and, and so forth and so forth, but there is a way in of genuine curiosity intellectually over could I be driven even better. 
One, the, um, you said in the age, of, it was the slide that was titled "How to Do This in the Age of Trump." Oh yeah, the controversial one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, I think it's still going. Yeah. 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 I mean, so so one one example on this is, is market failure, right? And I think we've kind of won this argument before we finish here. If you have twenty eight percent women at direct investment, and you only have seven percent partnership actually. That is a market failure. Because you are absolutely not maximizing your team resources. And you can't tell me materially it's, it's just that they're not suitable or it's a market failure. So any organization which is now up against the cosh and the more more than ever stakeholder pressure, shareholders scrutiny and so forth, they've got to look at all these options. Right? I don't want to overstate it because I think you know it's only one factor. Go ahead, Aura. So just to, just to follow up on this, what you said. So, um, so when you think of these financial consulting firms, for example, the, the, the way the, the company culture is set up is very male. There's mm -hmm. uh, this, this group of those public school boys who are trained in debating. And so in a way, maybe these people, just the, the institutions are, are constructed for the men to thrive. So do they actually also see, do they think that by putting, you know, women, um, promoting women, is that actually done and it will change from within? Or is there also like a sort of um, willingness to change the system? Or do they just hope for endogenous change within the system by promoting women? So I think there's not one answer, right? It really depends on the culture of an organization. But, but generally speaking, um, there is absolutely this issue where they think that the current norm is the norm, right? So it's normal, but this is, you know, that's how it normal. And therefore, anything you might do, any initiative you might do, challenging the norm. And I think with some organizations, we are getting this idea that you, know, you didn't change the norm as well as fix the women, right? And so I think this is where we try and do inclusive leadership work and where the bias and the Lucas Association test, they go on a journey to examine their own, you know. But this is a, an intervention which is, you know, David and Goliath, right? They're still going up against all the norms and the reinforcement that happens all the time. Over. So I think you have to do the unconscious as well as the conscious. You have to really have concerted effort if you want to try and make a step change. I reference KPMG because I think, in, in the, certainly in the London office, the, the stars were aligned. You, know, you had senior leaders who got it, who had been through all of this work, who wanted to make a difference, and they were open to nudging all the things we possibly could. We had a situation where for six months they only hired male PAs, right? Uh, that itself was a kind of a complete change for these guys who saw women as a junior PA rather than as a, you know, um, the talent management discussion I went over and so forth and so forth. So I think it, it, it depends. I mean, it's really context dependent, but there are organizations that are doing it. There are generally. Um, yeah. But I could say more if you want to go down a particular example or a particular company or a particular aspect. No, it's especially interesting in the financial sector because mm. I have a few friends in London who work mm. in there and just seems like this very male-dominated mm. alpha male kind of uh, industry. Uh, I would just find it very hard to, to imagine how this how this can change. Have you come across a book called um, The Hour Between Dog and Wolf? Remember John, John Coates was an ex-banker. I think he's a J.P. Morgan. And he's now at Cambridge Business School, um, the Judge Business School there, uh, teaching. And, um, 
He wrote this book called The Outer and Double Wall, which analyzed basically all male trading floors, um, and particularly during the financial crisis. And he looked at the physiologi physiological changes in bodies as they trade, right? from testosterone levels to correlations with risk and all this stuff. And it's absolutely fascinating. Because the conclusion of it was, of course, that we had the ultimate example of the proverbial eggs in one basket. And when the going is good, you can get above market returns. When the going is bad, you're massively exposed to risk. And one of the conclusions of his book was we need to proactively diversify those organizations to have better returns over the medium and long term. That you should actually take a hit in the short term to have these better medium and long term results. Now, have they acted on that? I don't know any bank that's comprehensively acted on that. But there are those that are aware of it and starting to do things. And I think, um, Did you have a question? No, you go ahead. I'm, I'm right. I'm right. So well, I'll pick on the man as well. Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> Moving from diversity to inclusion, what is the advice that you give companies when they've reached sort of diversity in numbers, mm -hmm. so that they've sort of hit targets, you know, or zones, but when, um, but they still don't have the cultural shift. So the people are literally around a table, but they don't always feel their opinion matters. <laughs> this is basically my question. <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I just add on this? But, but yeah. Like, yeah, like you have, you have this great line, diversity is a reality, you know, inclusion is a choice. I mean, I think what you're talking a lot about is changing the demographics of these organizations, but I wonder if you have an example, and this also goes to this point around culture, if you have an example of building competencies around constructive conflict, or, you know, I mean, how, you know, how, you know, really changing the way people work in ways that there's disagreement and, you know, right. you, get, you know. And we teach by the case method, as you, of course, know. Um, and, and one of the settings I've been in recently exploring, like, a case where people were literally at the table but still didn't feel that they had voice and, you know, significant errors were missed and so forth. But what you described is still the vast majority of organizations, right? That's yes. kind of how it is. I mean, there was a book written by Laura Lissowood called The Land is Duck, which was exactly about this. That they get the diversity in, but then, you know, it's a leaky bucket, and body rejects organ. And I wouldn't want to hang around when my opinions weren't valid and so forth, and they leave again. And you can see lots of Fortune 500 companies that have increased diversity and increased attrition. And that can actually be doubly negative, because then the kind of implicit association in the executive's minds is, oh, well, diversity just, you know, doesn't work. It's, mm -hmm. They're all leaving, and it just, it's just a problem. So to that point, um, we try and do inclusive leadership work with C-suites, with exec teams, where it's focused on their cultural competency and their behavior stuff as the key determinant of, of that. So one quick example, at the Olympics, where it was massively under time pressure and, and so forth and so forth, all very, very systematic. Um, board meeting would be changed to be more structured, to allow everybody to participate in the first five minutes of the meeting, and the, there'd be a rotating chair. And that those interventions demonstrably changed the culture of the organization and made sure other voices were heard and so forth. Gave more platform to minorities, to introverts, it's better for you know, minute-taking, risk mitigation, all, all the rest of it and so forth. AstraZeneca started to copy that. Now. I know that in banking, UBS is looking at that because UBS is suffering a lot of time in the last couple of years. And it was perhaps talked to Credit Suisse. Um, so I know that some are starting to do these kind of behavioral changes. And now what's interesting that there's a big you know, rise in board evaluation, um, something we should get into actually, board evaluation stuff. 
And, um, and they're now looking, for example, the FSA in the UK, where it looks at regulating the banks, actually has an explicit piece on culture and decision-making as part of their risk assessment framework. And this would be one example of how decisions are made. So what's been fascinating for me is even with hedge funds, which hedge funds, the ultimate output of the dark side of the river over there, um, you know, where actually they're doing multi-billion pound deals, and they're now actually saying, okay, no, we, we do need, actually need to get, they, they recognize they need to get some cognitive diversity around the table. They're not quite, I think, getting to the next level, which is then need to actually need to use it. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's the hard part. So they are paying big bucks for people who will think differently, who will answer differently, but they're still, to your point, I think fixing the women or putting it all on them to do rather than them change themselves. So I think it does come down to some often like hilariously simple things like rotating the chair, uh, changing the structure of the meeting, which you know, you're telling senior executives how to run a meeting mm. as to kind of create some of these behavioral changes. I've got some examples of it, but I don't think we've been successful yet in creating a systemic culture shift in them. Um, but I'd be interested in working with the regulators on that, in particular, the process part rather than regulating the out part. Of it. Really interesting. Do you mind if I go to you first and then come to you? Okay. Yeah. So, what, what do you say about instances where diversity and inclusion actually work, where people are diverse? You've brought up a lot of different uh, voices around the table. The results of this aren't what you might expect. For example, you have the slide up about Trump. If you look at his top four advisors, it's his daughter, it's Kellyanne Conway, it's Omarosa, it's Steve Bannon, right? Clearly, these people had a lot of influence in his campaign. They were able to win white women, they were able to win a larger chunk of black men than any previous Republican candidate. They obviously were able to give him the ideas and the tool set that he so they're being listened to. The question is, is that something that we might want, right? Like, is that something that, that creates a net positive result? I'm not sure I understand it. Like, like, what are you going in, in, the, in the sense that have we, are we living in a more diverse America? Like, or did he just win, right? Like, he used diversity to win versus using diversity to create a more inclusive America. Like, if, if, if the CEO of Goldman Sachs is able to do this, He's able to win all sorts of business in places he hasn't, but he, he makes everybody poor. You know. Okay, so I'll, I'll give this a go. Help, help me with it, right? Um, let me be really clear. Right? Diversity is not a bed of roses. It's not necessarily even a good thing. Right? Diversity is a fact. And how you choose to use it is almost a moral question as well as an economic one. Right? Um, my personal view is that Trump won by getting out the white right vote. And that basically that's what happens when white people's identity is salient as black or Asian or whatever it might be. That's my overall kind of analysis of it. So I don't deny what you're saying about perhaps he played diversity quite carefully, clever or that. But with respect, my view would be that above and beyond that, he got out the white vote. And Trump is what happens when white people become politicized and ethnicized for the first time in their lives, right? White fragility and so forth and so forth. That's my take on that. But in terms of diversity, um, I, again, I mean, you're right. I mean, you could even go as far to say that Hitler used diversity, right? I mean, you could you could really use this in a quite a bit of, kind of dramatic, unethical, disturbing way. But I think it depends about what is it you're trying to do. And I don't want to speak for the current administration what they're trying to do. If I speak for AstraZeneca or for Novartis or for Scouts or for KPMG, what they're trying to do is create value. Um, and if they can use diversity to do that, they'll do it. 
I'm sure part of it is perhaps in one level some diversity 101 or 2.0 tokenism type stuff to look good, to keep regulators happy and so on and so forth. But I generally feel there are core organizations who are using it intelligently to, you know. I mean, speaking to Coke and McDonald's recently, you know, privately they all say that since the election they've seen some of their global sales fall, right? Anti-Americanism associated with their brands, and they're worried about that. So Coke's recently launched this massive diversity inclusion campaign online, which is using diversity unashamedly, hopefully, presumably, to boost their sales. Um, so, I don't know, what do you think? I, I guess I'm trying to say, depends how you want to use it, I guess. Did you want to say? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I do consulting and banking and mortgage, with banks and mortgage companies across the country on how to be more inclusive, and, um, and I've created, so my problem was that I would help them with recruiting for diversity, and then they were still extremely exclusive. So I developed this training program for all of their loan officers and mainly customer-facing individuals in the company that is about how to be more in inclusive, but under the guise of this is a business opportunity, this is how you get more business in these diverse markets. Um, but as I'm doing that, I'm finding this dilemma between, one, typically these groups are extremely not diverse, and so, uh, and their, their in-groups in are extremely like the same as them. and so. I think exposure is super important and, um, and talking about the differences in culture so that they get that kind of awareness. Um, but in doing that, sometimes I wonder if I'm perpetuating stereotypes and perpetuating the problem, you know? But if we don't talk about those differences in culture, then everyone remains extremely ignorant. And so I've read research on this, found like different, differing opinions, and I just don't know where to take this, you know? So I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Brilliant point, and I love your thoughts on that. You probably researched that point more than I have, but I guess it's a, it's a real you know, I talked before between the academic and the practical, and I find myself a little bit at sea in the practical on this point. Because, take for example, monitoring, right? In order to hold up the mirror to an organization, um, I need to kind of have some data to say, you know, well, actually, 28%, 7%, or this, or this, or this, or this. But by default, any of that data collection tends to be relatively crude in comparison to what I, what I could be doing, right? So there is, a, I think, a real tension between needing that data to prove a point and thinking, mm, you know. Another example would be, you know, when I work with C-suites, um, they love it when you get to cognitive diversity. Okay, oh, brilliant, oh, right, yeah, cognitive diversity. I kind of get that, that makes sense. Does that mean I don't have to talk about gender or race anymore? Right, mm -hmm. oh, because, you know, we're all super diverse thinkers, you know, who likes golf, I don't, right? Um, no, <laughs> you still have to talk about race and gender. And, but because they are implicitly correlated with cognitive diversity, right, and it's all part of the same thing. So I don't have an answer for you, but perhaps one way of thinking about it is that if diversity is truly infinite, as I believe it is, then you want to get as near to that point as you can. But that doesn't mean just jumping straight there and saying cognitive diversity, no gender facts. It means going through to there. So actually all of the kind of messy stuff on the way too. Um, and in terms of monitoring, I mean, you know, rapidly we can talk about different kinds of monitoring try and get more and more accurate as we can as we go along. And intersectionality comes into play, and et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. So um, don't have an answer. But I, I think being aware of that uh, tension, that gap, and um, yeah, taking this. I mean, I've gone for the data. I, I, I've taken a stab and being aware of the fact that it's imperfect. And don't be wearing stereotypes and actually focusing on a, a mission rather than a 
about it? Do you think it's a bad thing to say, you know, here are differences in um, traditional Hispanic and Latino families versus, you know, like getting into that specific? Well, okay, we're going yes and no, right? I'm going to frustrate with my answer because it depends how you're framing it, how you're doing yeah, it. Okay. You know, if it's like, you know, all black guys play football, all white guys, you know, yeah. you're furthering stereotypes. Mm -hmm. No, you know, but if it's like the data suggests there are these correlations okay, or yeah. these things to think about, so you're framing it, then sure. So for example, in Brexit, right, I advise the government in the UK, 90% of gay people in the UK vote to remain, right? Is that a stereotype? No, no, no. Yeah. And 90% of black people in the UK vote to remain. 90% of Bangladeshis in the UK vote to leave, right? So the, I mean, the, again, data, data, live, down statistics. But I think um, how you frame it and how you work with this depends the responsibility on you as a leader and a practitioner to, to frame it. And, um, and a question for you. So, something that you touched upon in your last um, response was cognitive diversity. Mm -hmm. And so the, the concept, there the are two concepts of diversity. One is like surface level diversity, sure. which deals with the race and gender that you talked sure. about. And the other one is the, the, the deep level diversity. And I wonder if Trump's, if the people that he surrounds himself with, it's just surface level. It looks, seems diverse on the surface in the sense like, I mean, he's got his, daughter and uh, Kellyanne Conway and that's also not diverse but um, and another person so I, I don't know if that sort of helps with that it's just surface it's not maybe on the surface and that's what got the worst gone in the worst but I mean I don't know I'm just attempting to like say that I mean I'm, I, I might want to be you know you can, you can easily do a marketing campaign you can easily do a yeah. absolutely yeah. Um, yeah I mean but I guess it's truly ultimately about patterns of discrimination or patterns of output or showing the money, right? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Google could, could, you know, fix it and do some demographic, you know, fancy accounting, but ultimately, what about protecting pipelines? What about proportional women coding? What about, you know, and then, so for me, I mean, I'm happy to talk more about this, but I mean, if you mentioned Kellyanne Conway, Ivanka Trump, and, you know, fine, but let's look at what's actually happening. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and, and my question, yeah. I had a question for you. In your work with the professional services firms, uh, have you ever found, um, uh, particularly like when they're looking to promote people from senior management to partnership, have you found um, any evidence that they actually ask for, they ask for a written, uh, some, something, a written assessment, which would assess their values um, and their vision for the, org the kind of organization they would want to run as an intervention? It's interesting. So not exactly that, but two things become similar. Mm -hmm. So one is that one thing KPMG did was they introduced a new D grade interview, mm -hmm. where you know it's very hierarchical, E to A grade, then partner. But actually, the A grade is going for interviews for partnership. It's interviewed by a bunch of D grades. Mm -hmm. So millennials and Gen Z or whatever. Mm -hmm. Hold on, right? Mm -hmm. That was an interesting intervention because they had you know weighting in the decision that was made and so forth. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting intervention. So culture, they were assessing their leaders as to whether they thought they were an inclusive leader and something that they wanted to have when they were first. Um, another will be a construction company that I worked with recently. Like construction is, you know, along with sport, one of the most lagging sectors in, in terms of gender equality. And what the new CEO there did was to change the bonus structure. And the fact that he gave people one year's notice, so again, a bit of heads up as to what's coming, that the bonus structure, which is about 70% of comp, 
rather than being all the financials, being 50% of the financials, and 50% of the 16,000 in the bank that was all around them. And they were given a year's notice for that. And just followed through with it. That actually 50% of the comp was linked to you know, values assessed by people around you in the organisation. So they're related. Sometimes the 360 degree feedback could, I mean, it's, it's, it's expensive to implement, and that's what I've got, like, when I've spoken to some of the human resources, uh, the, the, the chief principals there, that's what, they've met, that's what they've said. And I was trying to think of, like, a way of a least cost intervention, a low cost intervention that would sort of help understand that deep level diversity um, of a person, their market to move to a partnership. Almost very inclusive leadership potential or behaviors or their yeah yeah and yeah and uh, if they have a you know so something if a return assessment would you know like a mission and challenge statement would help um get you know would be that intervention yeah yeah okay careful about the, the point you raised actually about um, the stereotype and I'm very careful and I don't also fall into that potential trap of doing that. Um, but as a general rule, um, sure, uh, people who are engaging this for the first time, particularly straight white men who were kind of A to B, problem solution, let's fix it, gender, is definitely the same reason to kind of come. And within that, their archetypal image of a woman as a white woman, for sure. In most companies in the UK, US, Europe that I work with, that's probably the short answer to your question. Um, I was at a Financial Times Women at the Top conference in the last year. I was the token man on the panel. And the question was, was asked by um, Sarah Gordon, the business editor of the FT, who's fabulous, by the way, if you can read her stuff, it's great. She asked the question about, you know, kind of similar to yours, what does diversity mean to people these days in terms of what they're promoting? And the room of very, very accomplished women in the city of London um, was, I guess, predominantly white women. And I made this point about how uh, I, I longed for us to go beyond the quite facile definition of diversity to actually, what do you want? It, it kind of goes to your point about, you know, what is it you want? I don't just want a woman on the board. I want more difference around the table to input to my decision making and challenge my decision making and mitigate my risks and add value and perspective and so forth, right? And if that comes in the, persona of a woman, then fantastic, right? Um, and, and I think I, I kind of made this point that you should be hiring for diversity in its infinite sense, rather than sort of tokenistic view of a woman. And I'd say half the room were like, yay, and half the room were like, wow, the guy saying this is a challenge to the gender agenda. <laughs> so I, I think it's um, I think it's an interesting point. But but certainly for the organization I'm working with, gender would be by far and away what they are. 
say, for example, one professional services company has finally launched a global diversity strategy, but it's basically a global gender strategy. And that's fine, but I think it's people like them, people who they can identify with as like them, rather than thinking. One of the examples I put in the book, which is quite poignant to me, one of my best friends, um, when I was a postgrad, um, was a woman called Brooke Ellison. Um, she's a first quadriplegic to graduate from Harvard. She's phenomenal, right? And she was in my class, and we were in, I don't know whether it was ethics or some core cool empathy class. And for a while, the men had been dominating the conversation. And after class, women emailed each other and said, right, we're going to make an intervention in this class. We're going to take it to class. We're going to be in the front of the room. We're going to set the agenda for class. It didn't include her own email. And when they went to the front of the class, it was up steps, so she couldn't have got there anyway. And she, you know, we made an intervention from her point of view to say, hey, that's it's about gender, right? Inclusivity. So I, but I think part of this is, again, it's just bias, unconscious bias. It's system one, it's people not thinking. Um, but, yeah. I'm still going to do a lot of I'm so sorry. I'm like the hardest one here. I'm so sorry. So sorry. But I'm glad that there's plenty of time. Um, in this entire talk, it's been very interesting because um, you've been, I, I appreciate the insight and experience from the board level and the C-suite. Um, you, you mentioned in your like third um, vision of how diversity inclusion could be that it would not just be top down, but bottom up. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk more about that because I was wondering how this really impact, say, like a bank teller, the customer service reps, the three constable? Mm. Sure. Um, let me do some good examples. So I'd say, um, first of all, uh, I'll give you four examples, uh, Olympics and Bradley Cooper in Cambridge. Um, let's just make an assumption that um, going to be a terrible assumption. So let's do this one with it. Let's make an assumption that people coming into the workforce are more diversity aware and positive about diversity than perhaps some of the decision makers already in the organization. Um, this, therefore, being said by the top, is very important for them to hear coming in, bottom up. And if anything else, it gives people permission. Right? And we know that some people require more permission than others um, when it comes to jurisdiction. At the Olympics, I put this example up. On the one hand, it was a command and control structure. It was like the military going for war, very much. But part of that command and control structure was actually taking calculated risk to empower people to be themselves bottom up. Right? Now, the risk was, of course, you might lose consistency in customer service, they might say something silly, they might expose us to risk, blah, 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 blah. But the positive of the cost benefit was they'd be themselves, they'd be more engaged, they'd be more happy, they'd give better customer service, etc. And my experience practically from the games was that it was overwhelmingly positive result in terms of that miscalculation. So we say, we want you to be yourselves. We really mean it. Here's some points of evidence to show that we really mean it. Go do it. And they did. So you had people you know, in uniform facing the games with world journalists wandering around saying funny things and stuff. But overwhelmingly, it was a good thing for them, for customer service, for the games. Um, in KPMG, you know, Every kind of professional recruiter that might come to Harvard will say, you know, diversity clean is really important, but go on Glassdoor, right, and look what people are really saying. Or well, now there's a version called Include, 
which is actually a kind of a DNI diversity inclusion version of Glassdoor, where you can say, well, what do women think about working at Goldman Sachs? What do gay guys think about working at wherever? Um, and I think they're having to do this to empower people bottom up. And when I talk to Harvard undergrads or undergrads in the UK, they are absolutely looking at this stuff as a source of reference for can I be me when I go there? Because I, I'm still shocked that in 2017, take LGBTQ for example, there were still 30% of people who were openly queer, gay at university who came back into the closet when they go into work. Right? So I think if we can make it an empowering concept that people can be themselves, I think it's, it's great for the bank teller or the policeman or the volunteer or whoever it might be. I also, because also I'm wondering, like, in the United States, it tends to be a lot of the top people in business and government all went to the same sort of schools, all have mm -hmm. the same background, whether or not they are Democrats or Republicans, um, whether or not they're, you know, specific demographics. They tend to come up from the same culture, and I, you know, all, probably all of you here in this room are now part of that culture. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how do we sort of promote the diversity and inclusiveness for people who don't necessarily have access to get in and to oh. make it up? So I think there that more about social mobility. Uh, social mobility is like a big deal in the UK, for example, which is still a very class-based society. Um, so social mobility, I think, is now a increasingly recognised diversity strand, which of course is correlated with gender and other diversity strands, but in its own right. And there's increasing focus on that, but it's years behind focus on gender and anything else. And I can happily share some data and stuff with them on that across. Just conscious of time, I think. Yeah, we should talk to I'm so sorry I didn't. I got, got you there at the end, but I'm <laughs> No, it's very powerful. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a wonderfully thought provoking, but it's a great problem to leave us with, right? It's a really, this has been terrific. Thank you so much. So please join me in thank you. For a wonderfully thought provoking conversation. Thank you so thank you. much. Um, please join us next week. Uh, Anna Catalano, who is a Catalana Weeks, who's a WAP fellow and a college fellow in the Gov Department here at Harvard, is going to be presenting on Quotas Matter, the impact of gender quota laws on work family policies.